Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. One story of sexual assault by faculty at an elite New England boarding school came after an internal investigation. And then they uncovered, they lifted up this rock, and there were all kinds of things crawling underneath there. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll talk about the Boston Globe spotlight report that prompted that closer look and uncovered allegations dating back to the 1960s. We'll also find out what's killing New England's moose and see what it takes to replicate the ancient forest habitat of an earlier New England, in part by knocking down trees. We needed to take it down to free up growing space for other trees. And in doing this, we create this great down log, which is habitat now for amphibians, small mammals, and vertebrates. And we'll visit a program at a rapidly diversifying high school that teaches tolerance at just the right time. Renee is an expert in everything that relates to her culture. So why not share all that expertise in the classroom? It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. In the Northeast, ancient forests, woodlands that have grown undisturbed for centuries, are pretty rare. Less than 1% of those old-growth forests remain here. But these forests provide critical habitat for animals and plants and can help mitigate flooding. A new study finds that harvesting trees in a way that mimics these old-growth forests restores some of this habitat. But as Kathleen Masterson found out, there's a climate change benefit, too. These engineered old-growth forests store a surprising amount of carbon. She went out to the woods to see how it's done. All right, we're going to go off trail here a little bit. It's a pleasantly sunny afternoon at the 500-acre University of Vermont Jericho Research Forest in northern Vermont. UVM forest ecologist Bill Keaton is literally walking me through his 15-year experiment. Using tree shears and backhoes, the researchers have engineered several plots of this middle-aged forest to look much more like an old-growth forest. More on that in a second. First, Keaton takes me to the control plot. It's five acres of untouched trees. The idea here is to measure how the forest would have grown if scientists hadn't tinkered with it. So all the trees are roughly the same age. There's a single layer in the canopy. There aren't a lot of interesting habitat features like dead and dying trees that are important for wildlife. Or It's just very uniform, homogeneous. All the trees in the study are about 150 years old. But in some plots, Keaton is trying to change their characteristics to mimic old-growth forest conditions. Keaton says he's trying to take these middle-aged trees and... Kind of nudge them along towards an older, more architecturally complex condition. After about a 10-minute walk of crunching through the forest floor duff, we get to the, quote, old-growth section of the forest. Keaton uses a longer technical term for it. So you're coming into one of the structural complexity enhancement units, and I want to see if you notice any changes as we walk in. Okay. Anything look different to you? Well, I do see an overturned giant stump, whatever you called that habitat. This is a tip-up mound. So we made this, and I'm particularly proud of it. 
A roughly 60-foot tree has been knocked down onto the forest floor, creating a tip-up mound, a flare-up of roots and dirt, and the cave-like ditch left underneath. This creates new niche habitat in the tipped-up roots. This would happen naturally over time, usually from wind or storms. But in this case, the researchers pulled over the tree using a cable. We needed to take it down to free up growing space for other trees, like that one right there, that nice big one that we're trying to crown release, so that one can grow to a really big size. And in doing this, we create this great down log, which is habitat now for amphibians, small mammals, and vertebrates. The researchers also girdled some tree limbs to create dead branch snags, which provide key animal habitat. Other trees were selectively harvested to create gaps in the canopy, letting in sunlight to the forest floor. The engineering technique succeeded in creating diverse habitats. But the kicker, Keaton says, it has also allowed the forest to store a significant amount of carbon. That's key to fighting climate change. Now, forests that are left alone, with no trees harvested, usually store the most carbon. But Keaton's study is finding that it is possible to manage a forest to maximize carbon capture and still keep it a working forest. This greater amount of carbon storage, as compared to the conventional treatments, was actually a combination of having left more trees behind in the first place and growth rates that were actually 10 percent higher in this treatment as compared to the conventional harvest. And that was really surprising. Keaton says after 10 years, the old-growth forest management plot stored nearly as much carbon as the unlogged control forest. This does not just have to be a science project. This is a a very potentially very practical tool uh, that many forest owners could use. That's Fred Clark, the director of the National Forest Stewards Guild. Clark says Keaton's work shows landowners who are interested in managing their forests for habitat and biodiversity that they can do that and still make some income from the land both from harvesting select trees and... We have forest, primarily large forest ownerships uh, throughout the country um, are now taking advantage of the, the California carbon market by developing and registering what are called carbon projects or carbon offset projects. It's not just California. Quebec also has a market where forest landowners can sell carbon credits, though these markets are still in their infancy. Back at the woods at Jericho, Vermont, Keaton says he was surprised that the old growth management technique actually brought in decent revenue. So that was promising to us. Now, in absolute terms, again, we harvested about 60 to 80 percent less volume. This is not going to maximize your commercial revenue. It's just not. But in the right situation, for the right type of landowner, depending on their objectives, it might be something that they could consider. And if carbon markets continue to grow in the future, that would add even more financial incentive. That's Kathleen Masterson from VPR reporting. So there's a nice wilderness story there about something that might help to reverse climate change. Our next story is not so sunny. Imagine you're a moose in the woods of New Hampshire, and it's the 1990s. There's a perfect mix of young and mature forest and plenty of food. The times are good, and there's about 7,400 or so of you roaming in the Granite State. Today, there are only about 3,400 moose in New Hampshire, and the same steep decline is being reported in neighboring Vermont and Maine. The culprit, a nasty tick whose proliferation is brought on by climate change. Christine Rines is a wildlife biologist with the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. She's heading up a four-year study to learn more about how weather changes and forest management practices affect the moose population. Christine, welcome to Next. It's nice to be here. Thanks for calling. Tell me about this study and and how exactly it got started. So we actually started this study back in 2001 with a mortality survey 
we recognized in the mid-90s that moose seemed to have plateaued, even though there was a lot of forage available. They weren't really growing uh, the population itself, so we started a mortality study um, thinking it might be due to winter tick. Ticks did come up as the primary source of mortality. At that point, we thought that was the worst it would be, that mortality level. I think the high point was about 50% of our calves. But over the intervening 10 years, we recognized that things were getting worse. So we worked with University of New Hampshire, Dr. Peter Peekins. We talked with Maine, got them to come on board, and Vermont just came on board this past year. And we are all working together to try and see whether moose density and cutting practices influence the ticks and try and figure out what the future may hold. In this area, we're all pretty familiar, say, with deer ticks, the carriers of Lyme disease. What's a winter tick? Oh, so uh, all ticks are horrible. (laughs) 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 But winter tick are interesting. They... They evolved with white-tailed deer, and they quest or get on deer in the late fall. The entire egg mass um, hatches out, and all of those ticks kind of link their legs together and quest as one big unit. So hundreds of ticks quest as one mass. I'm just going to stop you and say that sounds absolutely horrifying in every way. Absolutely. So deer, because they evolved with ticks, they're what we call obligate groomers. And when the ticks get on them, they immediately groom most of them off. So deer tend to only allow a few ticks to live. The ticks live their entire life cycle on that host, live on it throughout the wintertime, and then drop off in the spring. Moose did not evolve with ectoparasites. They evolved far to the north where it's cold and long winters. So they're not very good at grooming. So when the ticks get on them, they all pretty much survive. Moose don't groom until the itching becomes a problem. And by then, it's too late. They will have thousands of ticks on them. So in the presence of moose, and as moose densities increase, so do the ticks. The other thing that helps ticks is shorter winters. So when our snow does not come until late December, which has been happening much more frequently, the ticks will be able to get on moose from when they start questing in September until you get permanent snowfall. And so what's happening is our winters have shortened by three weeks um, in the last 30 years, and at the same time, moose densities have increased, and we've basically set the stage for lots of ticks, which has caused moose to decline. And just to be clear, these ticks are feeding on the moose in in the numbers of thousands. Is there a disease component to this as well, or is it about an infestation of these horrible little creatures linking together? 
Yeah, so um, we've looked for all kinds of possible diseases. It's very rare to find anything wrong with these animals aside from the severe anemia and protein deficit caused by literally thousands of ticks. Upwards of 96,000 ticks have been counted on our moose. So they, they literally suck these calves dry and at a time of year when nutrition isn't exactly great. So we call April the month of death here because come April they have simply run out of protein in their bodies. They cannot replace their blood volume and they, the, the calves and occasionally adults start to die. So there are more ticks in large part because we're having shorter winters. Yeah. And the abundance of ticks on these moose mean that there's even more ticks. Are the moose themselves moving because of climate change? Are they moving further north out of New England? Uh, no. They unfortunately don't have good realtors. So, <laughs> they, you know, once an animal sets up shop, unless they are young and, you know, looking for new places to live, this is where they will live and die. Um, moose north of here, as long as their winters remain longer, moose will continue to survive. But here in New England, you know, we are on the southern edge of moose range, and so we are feeling the effects of our changing climate first for moose, and uh, it's not pretty. <laughs> so what can we do about this? Is this purely a function of climate change, or is there something that you're looking at, maybe as, as crazy as it sounds, putting tick collars on moose? Mm. So you can't go out and put tick collars on moose. Um, we know for a fact that certain things will work. Burning the forest works. Um, ivermectin works, but it's dosage dependent. And uh, in the face of just putting it out there um, in these, uh, they call them four posters or uh, rollers, what they're finding is that they develop ticks that are immune to the uh, the drugs. So the things that we can do are the things that we don't want to do, and that is change our own carbon footprint on the environment. And while that may not help moose uh, in the near future, it will certainly reduce the changes that are coming. Given the stresses that, that moose in New Hampshire and across this region are under, do you think that legislatures should reconsider moose hunting? Do you think that that's a, a problem, an increasing problem, given the the large mortality numbers? No. Um, the interesting thing about this whole situation is as moose densities decline, um, the ticks themselves decline. So we have cutoff points at which point we will stop hunting. What we don't know, given these short winters, is will any lower density really help, or will the ticks simply do well as long as moose exist at all? So 
our hunt right now takes considerably fewer moose than are killed by automobiles each year. It's not hunting that is causing the problem. It is our changing environment. Mm. And, and for people who may listen to a story like this and say, well, that's too bad for the moose, but what does that really mean to me? Explain what role moose play in, in the ecosystem of, of New Hampshire and in northern New England. Well, moose certainly provide food for many of our predators, and they they also change our environment. They They keep clear cuts younger for longer periods of time, which is great for all kinds of birds. But the bottom line is, it's it's not going to create a big environmental issue for moose to disappear. Um, it's it's going to be sad, but it's not going to dramatically impact environment. There are deer which will feed our predators, and will do almost exactly the same thing. I think the important thing to note here is that moose are really kind of the tip of the iceberg. And they are an important warning for us that things are definitely changing. And it might be in our best interests to start to heed this change. Christine Rines, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. You can find photos from the Moose Study on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, elite boarding schools own up to decades of sexual abuse by staff. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Another New England private school has come forward with a report detailing sexual abuse of students by staff over decades. Last month, St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, released a report naming 13 former faculty and staff members. According to investigators hired by St. Paul's, accusations of sexual misconduct against the 13, which ranged from inappropriate touching to repeated rape, had been substantiated. This report also includes the account of misconduct by 10 additional unnamed faculty members. The alleged abuse took place between 1948 and 1988. St. Paul's is just the latest school to release its own findings since a Boston Globe spotlight investigation last year revealed allegations of sexual abuse at 67 private schools across New England. In many cases, the alleged abusers were fired or allowed to resign without being reported to authorities. That was the case at St. George's School in Rhode Island, where Ann Scott was a student. Scott told her story to the Globe. He, he had access to a locked room. I'll never forget the sound of the lock closing. I never trusted him. Numbing, numbing myself is really how I coped with it. So I did withdraw pretty severely. I was deeply ashamed. I was blaming myself. Uh, and then I started hurting myself and developed an eating disorder. 
Joining us now is Jonathan Saltzman, a reporter on the Globe's Spotlight team who took part in that investigation. He's also worked on several follow-up stories, including an article on the report from St. Paul's School in Concord. We recorded our conversation back in April. Jonathan, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So maybe you can take us back to the start of your Spotlight team's investigation. How and why did you begin looking into this problem of sexual abuse and misconduct at private schools in New England? In December uh, of 2015, one of our colleagues, who's not on the Spotlight team, but is a veteran reporter, Bella English, and she did a pretty extraordinary story about a woman named Ann Scott. Um, she's an executive at a nonprofit in Virginia these days, and she's in her, I believe, early 50s. But in the late 1970s, she was a student at another boarding school, St. George's School in Rhode Island. She was a student athlete, but uh, she alleged that she was sexually abused, raped by an athletic trainer at the school in the late 1970s on multiple occasions. Now, she came forward with this uh, actually about 10 years later. She'd suffered extraordinarily, and she'd had a lot of emotional problems. And she filed a lawsuit against the school, but it was a different time. She had filed it as a Jane Doe, and um, what they did was they essentially uh, would not let her proceed with this suit unless she came forward with her name. And they wanted to delve into her own past. And so she backed off. And she signed a a gag order. And she agreed not to discuss it anymore. And that seemed to be the end of that until 2015 when, now that she was, you know, older, more mature, and uh, uh, felt, you know, the times had changed. And she uh, spoke to the Globe about her experience And what happened was that was a blockbuster story, and ultimately, I would say more than 50 kids at St. George's, more than 50 alumni, came forward to say they too had been sexually abused. Um, But when that story first ran in December of 2015, the editor of The Globe came to the Spotlight team and said, you know, I, I think we've had these kinds of stories from time to time. How widespread is this problem in private schools? And is there anything similar about it to the uh, clergy sex abuse scandal, which, of course, the spotlight team in an earlier uh, carnation uh, exposed? And so we spent the better part of a year looking at how widespread this was at schools in New England. And we found out that it was pretty damn widespread. A few of the ways in which this is similar from the clergy sex abuse scandal that you uncovered is the number of years, in many cases, that people waited to tell their stories for very good reasons, as you outline. Uh, There's also a a culture of of secrecy and privacy around around these schools and their ability to control information. Of course, there's also the problem of, just like priests who would go from one parish to another, uh, there are teachers who would then move from one school to another that students might well be concerned about. So I guess I'm wondering how many more of those parallels you saw with the clergy sex abuse scandal in the, in the Catholic Church uh, as with this, this private school problem. For one thing, uh, these were kids who were being exploited by people to whom they had been entrusted. Some of these uh, alumni had had troubled family backgrounds, and a number of them said that uh, they were drawn to certain teachers 
who ended up becoming uh, abusers. And um, those, much like with the priests, they seem to know who to target. Uh, the other thing is that um, you're exactly right. There is a kind of a, a culture of, to a degree, of secrecy and uh, keeping things uh, within a kind of a closed circle. And uh, startlingly, there were a number of occasions when teachers left, and much as with the priests, uh, they were moved. They got letters of recommendation, and they moved on. Uh, of course, there are, there are differences as well. I mean, in, with the clergy uh, sex abuse scandal, the church might move one priest to another parish, and they're affiliated with one another. These are independent schools, but there were, you know, there are some strong parallels. I want to play a clip from a video that's posted as part of the Spotlight investigation, uh, an interview with one of the victims. This is Stephen Starr. He's talking about a teacher and dorm master named James Dahlman at Fessenden School in Massachusetts back in 1968. Let's listen. Uh, You know, he'd walk around campus with a camera, and um, I was very interested in learning more about that. And uh, so I uh, pursued him to learn about photography. And uh, that uh, turned into something quite more than that. He would invite me to uh, come down after lights out to his room and to work in the dark room with him, ostensibly. Um, He gave me a camera, uh, which I actually still have to this day. I felt like, wow, I was really special. You know, I had this mentor who was looking out for me, who was teaching me these things. He took pictures of me, he would pose me, and sort of stage me in certain ways. He um, took other pictures that were um, much more erotic, and um, he took pictures of me in his room. He gave me booze, and he, uh, over time, uh, he started uh, molesting me. That's Stephen Starr, interviewed by the Boston Globe Spotlight team as part of a multimedia package in their big investigation from last year about sexual abuse at private schools in New England. This story, uh, Jonathan, is something that I'm assuming you and your colleagues heard an awful lot of. Um, The teachers would take students who were, you know, looking for a mentor, and they would would ply them in one way or another and and gain their trust and and then abuse them. I actually interviewed Stephen Starr in Los Angeles. So he went to the Fessenden School. He was only 11 years old when he was sexually abused. And um, as he, you know, as the story says, he was actually abused. uh, He says he was abused by two educators at the school. The thing that got me so interested and the reason I went out to California to interview him was because he told me that he still had the camera that uh, James Dahlman, his uh, alleged abuser, gave him as a gift. And I found that to be quite remarkable. And I thought that was almost, I I confess, almost weird that he would keep something from someone who had uh, caused so much uh, harm and unhappiness to him because, you know, Stephen has dealt with a lot of a lot of bad stuff. But he said, as he said, and we quoted him in the story as saying, he, he kept it. It was almost as a talisman. And um, he struggled for years with substance abuse and with all kinds of psychological problems. And he's actually one of the people whom we interviewed who 
seem to have uh, come out on the other side as well as imaginable. And uh, he he seemed to have a pretty successful career as a William Morris agent. He's writing a screenplay about his experience. Were there any consequences for for James Dahlman? Well, so what happened was James Dahlman, he and another uh, educator at the school, a high-ranking, I think, an assistant headmaster named Arthur Claridge, were arrested in the late 1970s as part of this pedophile ring. They were paying to have sex with young boys, boys I think as young as 12, in the the Boston area. I think Claridge, as I recall, cooperated, and uh, he testified, and uh, he ended up getting uh, like some sort of plea bargain. And Dahlman, uh, there's no evidence that he was convicted of anything. And I spoke to Claridge. Claridge is still alive. He's uh, he, he was as of a few months ago, and he was living in Florida. And uh, he denied abusing any kids at Pheasanton, but he admitted that he'd had sex with teenage boys in this uh, arrest in in Revere. And uh, he just kind of he seemed to seemed to kind of poo poo it. I'm wondering, as this investigation continues to play out, you published last year, and clearly some of these schools are launching their own investigations. There's more news coming out all the time. Do you think that we should look at this as a primarily private school problem? Is it a New England elite boarding school problem? I guess I'm just wondering if we can put our arms around how big an issue we're dealing with here. As we referenced earlier, the Catholic Church abuse scandal that you uncovered some years ago, it really essentially goes globally. And and I'm wondering if this is self-contained in some way or if this just keeps getting bigger. Well, I don't think it's a New England uh, boarding school problem. You know, if you look, you'll see that there actually have been similar scandals at uh, boarding schools um, in California uh, and elsewhere. Naturally, the Choates and uh, the Deerfields and uh, the Phillips Exeter, those schools, uh, because of their uh, great history and, um, you know, so many leaders and prominent people have gone to those schools, uh, they garner a, a tremendous amount of attention. But I, I don't for a second think it's something unique to New England boarding schools. And then the other question, which is a good one, uh, is is this something unique to private schools or is it happen at public schools as well? There's pretty scant scientific research about how uh, common educator sexual abuse is. So I don't think you can say it is more common in private schools than in public schools. But at the same time, you can't overlook the fact that there is probably more opportunity in boarding schools. The kids are away from home. They're living on campus with uh, frequently teachers and educators who are living on campus. And the other thing is that you do not have some of the safeguards at private schools that you might have with public schools. For example, private school teachers are not typically licensed. And there is no registry, as there is in some places, of uh, the public school teachers and what they have gotten in trouble for. Um, and nor is, are there public school board meetings um, where these subjects might come up. So I I don't think you can say it's more common in private schools, but I I think you can say that, you know, um, on some levels, it it makes sense that there might be greater access. 
Are you continuing to hear from victims who are bringing forward their allegations even decades later? Absolutely. I mean, in, just today, I, I, I've gotten emails. And what happens uh, is that whenever there are stories about this or something like this is in the news, it emboldens other people to come forward. One of the big things that emboldened a number of people uh, in this story, this series of stories last year, was the recent attention that the uh, scandal at Penn State garnered. And frankly, the, the Spotlight Team movie about the clergy sex abuse scandal, Stephen Starr said that that was one of the reasons that he decided to come forward, um, as well as the Ann Scott case at St. St. George's. So um, it's like it really does have a snowball effect. And can the victims of these crimes that happened in the 1960s or 1970s or, or 80s or 90s can they get some sort of restitution at this point, or is is it for them just the ability to share their stories and let others know that this is what happened to them? Well, uh, some of them have gotten uh, restitution. There have been suits that were filed. There have been settlements in some cases. Typically, the statute in terms of criminal culpability, uh, statutes of limitations have expired. But some people have gotten uh, some some settlements. Most of the people I've spoken to who've gotten them have have found that the money uh, they've said to me, and I have absolutely no reason to doubt it, that the money is kind of secondary. It's uh, coming forward and uh, getting the school's acknowledgement of what happened. That seems to be what they really want. A last thing for you, Jonathan, and I think this has always got to be a hard thing for someone who does investigative reporting of this type um, much like with the Catholic Church abuse scandal, not everyone who was involved with the Catholic Church was directly responsible for the terrible actions of, of some. And similarly, there are many, many thousands of people involved in private school education across our region who would say, my goodness, I, I had no idea, and might worry that a report like this, an ongoing report like this, could paint with too broad a brush. I guess I'm wondering from a journalistic standpoint how you balance the need to continue to work on behalf of those victims who don't have a voice, but then also making it clear that for the large majority of the people who pay good money to go to private boarding schools, they're probably getting pretty good educations free of a lot of the, the horrible things that you've, you've outlined here. It's true. You never do want to paint with too broad a brush. And a lot of the students or the alumni we spoke to, uh, including some who were abused, said that they did get a good education at those schools. Um, but consider this. Uh, at St. George's School, as I recall, the report uh, by the lawyer hired by the school found that, I believe, one in five kids at that school mm. over a period of uh, um, a couple of decades, as I recall, were uh, uh, sexually abused. Uh, that's a mm. ton of students. And that's, not a, and that's not a statistic that the school is going to readily tell to a parent who wants to en enroll their kid in a, in a private elite school. I mean, it's out there. It's in, it's in the report. I mean, it's a, it's, it, it's a staggering number. So... You know, of course, uh, thank goodness, you know, most kids who go to these schools do not get sexually abused. And and I suspect that it is uh, less common today than it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Nonetheless, it's still a lot of people. And if you think about how much 
you know, the the trauma that these people have suffered and mm-hmm. uh, how it's affected their families, it's, it's, it's a huge deal. It's remarkable reporting, and I'm so glad you shared some of it with us today. Jonathan Saltzman is a reporter for the Boston Globe Spotlight team. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. My pleasure. Coming up, a project at a rapidly diversifying New Hampshire high school brings refugee and American-born students together. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. Women make up nearly 15% of the U.S. armed forces. As more females return from service, many are at special risk of becoming homeless because of mental health problems, substance abuse, and military sexual trauma. As a result, women are the fastest-growing demographic of homeless veterans. But nearly all facilities for homeless vets house males and females together, and that can be counterproductive for women recovering from trauma. Rebecca Shear introduces us to a program in Leeds, Massachusetts, one of the nation's few that caters exclusively to the needs of women. A note of warning, this story contains some language that some listeners might find offensive. The federal government estimates that on any given night, three to 4,000 female veterans are homeless. But that estimate's probably on the low side, says Sarah Skoko, who directs the women's program of the nonprofit group Soldier On. When people are doing homeless counts, they're going to shelters. They're seeing people on the street. A female veteran is not the person you see on the street holding a sign. She might be a single mom. She may have experienced sexual trauma. So, says Skoko, these women are holing up in their cars. They're couch surfing. As a result... The issue of female veteran homelessness is so underlooked, understudied. It's not understood because it's not in your face all the time. So Soldier On decided to do its part okay. by building a transitional housing facility just for women. So um, welcome to the women's program. In this we bright and airy three-story building on the VA campus in Leeds, Massachusetts, the program houses 16 women and caters to their special needs with things like art and yoga classes, support groups, and job counseling. A lot of women that come to us have really lost everything. They've lost all sense of hope. And so all of what we do is build them back up. Skoko says all the residents suffered some sort of trauma before, during, or after they served. 61-year-old Luann Hazelwood, who was in the Army in the 1970s and 80s, says her verbal, physical, and sexual trauma started early in life. I more or less wanted to join the military as a way of escape. But she experienced more trauma in the military after she got out, too. When she came to the women's program, she was fleeing her second abusive marriage and was so traumatized she didn't speak. Being only around women made her feel safer. I can't say I've ever really had a positive relationship with a man. And, you know, um, I have yet to totally trust being around a man. So for me... It was a way of recouping from all the abuse that I went through. There's that commonality that each one of us faced some sort of adversity when we went into the military. 33-year-old Paige is another resident of the program. The former Air Force technician asked that we not use her last name. She'd struggled with depression and self-esteem issues long before she enlisted. She thought being in the military might help. I was thinking I was going to get some sort of approval and pat on the back. Instead, Paige got verbally harassed. You know, you're called a whore, fat bitch. 
and she fell into a culture of drinking. You party a lot. That's what happens. You work hard, you play hard. And Paige played especially hard. I remember going through Walmart after work one day. This is when I was drinking, and I wanted to crawl under a rock and, like, die. Because a lady stopped with her daughter and pointed to me and said, See, honey, that's a hero. Like, I'm supposed to be here protecting you. If I can't even help myself, what the hell am I doing? Paige confided in a therapist. She says he threatened to have her thrown out. In the end, she was allowed to resign with an honorable discharge. After rotating through several co-ed detox programs for veterans, she found the women's program. Were you still drinking at that point? Mm-hmm. I stopped, I think, like, the day or day before that I came in here. And I haven't had a drink since. By 2020, the number of female veterans is expected to reach 2.2 million. So there's an intense need for more gender-specific services, says Director Sarah Skoko. There are women that have served the hell out of our country, and they're not being recognized, and they need to be. They need to be treated not the same way as males, but they need to be treated, period. But demand for women-only services vastly exceeds supply. For these 16 rooms in Massachusetts, the women's program often has a waiting list and has received referrals and applications from as far away That's Rebecca Shear reporting. Her story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Ten years ago, the demographics of New Hampshire and of Concord High School were almost identical. Both were 93% white. While that number's remained steady for the state as a whole, the capital city's high school has diversified in a big way. More than 10% of the school's 1,600 students are, or were, refugees, resettled from some 66 countries. As part of a new program at the school, immigrant students and their teacher are working to promote acceptance. The students are going classroom to classroom, educating other students about their cultures and sharing stories. From New Hampshire Public Radio's Word of Mouth, Jimmy Gutierrez reports. There's a new lesson plan at Concord High, and it couldn't have come at a better time. Pretend pretend it's not a microphone. It's talking. You do that so well. Do you want me to stand behind you? That's Anna Marie Di Pasquale. The kids call her Miss D, and Renee Dutier, a senior at the school. We're heading to a classroom as part of Ms. D's newest project, Travel Around the World. The idea is simple. Ex-refugee students share their cultures and traditions firsthand. What do you have prepared? Um, I'm going to talk about my lovely country and tell them about my culture, the school, the uh, weather. Presentations I checked included a tasting of carrot halwa, a surprisingly sweet Pakistani dessert, the story of struggle behind the Burundi flag. I even learned how to say, how are you? Boni. And I'm fine in Lingala. No, Malamu. No, Malamu. Yeah. I'll be the first to say that language can be tricky, something that Renee has had to master throughout her childhood. Born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, her parents fled war to Rwanda when she was eight. For the next four years, Rwanda was home. Then her house was intentionally set on fire with some family still inside. Neighbors helped everyone escape, but her parents were badly burned. After that, they moved to Uganda, 
and in 2012 they were resettled in Concord, New Hampshire. Renee, now 14, was fluent in trauma and three languages. Today, in her fourth language, she casually stands in front of 20 students talking all about Rwanda. She tells classmates how some of the schoolgirls have to shave their heads. She shares music and talks about the ultimate equalizer, food. We have to buy a fresh chicken, like actually a fresh one that is the real chicken. So you have to kill it. <laughs> you have to kill it and cook it. I can't even kill like bugs and stuff. Renee is an expert in everything that relates to her culture. We have so many students that are experts in their own experience, so why not share all that expertise in the classroom? And then it benefits the whole school. Miss D has an overcaffeinated vibe that comes to life in her eyes. She says her role working with the refugee kids is to give voice to their needs. It's something she's been addressing since she started six years ago. First couple months I was here, I went into the um, social studies classrooms and we talked about how do we move beyond stereotypes. We get to know each other. We share each other's stories. That's the motivation for Be the Change, a student-led social club which brings refugee students and American students together to learn from each other. The club also speaks to Concord's transformation over the last 20 years as a resettlement site. In 1995, Concord schools were 97% white. Today, almost 20% of the district's students are non-white. While taking in refugees has always been contentious, a new tone was struck this past election season. With calls for closed borders, there are some students in the majority speaking up. Instead of just seeing, like, Sana, one of our um, Muslim students, wearing her hijab and just making assumptions, when you actually learn about her culture and her religion, it's actually a lot different than how, you know, the media and, like, politics make it out to be. That's Juliet Greenwood, a senior at the high school. Growing up in Concord, Juliet says she wasn't exposed to much diversity. As a seventh grader, she was invited to one of Miss D's multicultural events and for the first time found herself in the minority. Nobody spoke any English, but I was trying really hard to entertain people, and that's when Miss D said that I would be a great social worker, and that was our first kind of interaction. A few years later, as a sophomore, she experienced something in her lunchroom that took diversity from interesting to important. I mean, it's noticeable in the cafeteria. The white students sit at tables, and then the Nepali students sit at tables, then the more African students sit at tables, and there were some pretty derogatory comments from my friend group, and I kind of separated myself. Juliet says she confronted her friends and their language. Now she's one of the leaders of the Be the Change Club. But I find my role is really helping the white community, the enormous white community at this school, use me as an example. And to get the different, like, international students to see me as, like, an accepting white student (laughs) and not one of the many that maybe aren't as accepting. It was a matter of minutes before I ran into some of those not-as-accepting kids. In an empty hallway, a group of white boys at an open locker whistled and made monkey noises at Ms. D's Afro-Caribbean-American intern, Kaylin, and myself. Kaylin didn't flinch. Later during the presentations, in front of multiple teachers and a reporter, a couple of fresh-faced white teen boys in polo hats mocked the club and their students standing only feet away. I asked Ms. D if this was the norm. So I will say that... Um, For the most part, Concord High School is a super welcoming place. Today's an anomaly. You know, today today was was an anomaly. 
And it was, um, today was just an anomaly. Um, I think that's, education is the answer to everything. Combating racism isn't the toughest thing Renee's ever faced. But when international students first arrive, struggle is common. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know nobody, matter of fact. I used to go home and feel so bad. I would tell my parents, I'm like, I'm not going back to school. But they're like, well, you got to. Remember, back home, you didn't go to school. You got to go to school. You got to push yourself. So I kept pushing myself, and hey, look at me now. There's a lot of tears in my office. I need to give them a space to make sure that they know that they're going to be okay. They will get the language, that people are going to love them and welcome them here. And this is their school. While learning the language is a crucial point of entry, Ms. D tells me that there's also language that needs to be unlearned. Because when I first arrived, same thing, that term refugee. Language is powerful, right? And I was mm-hmm. like, what? You're not refugees anymore. When you call some people, yes, it would be kind of like not cool to be called like that. But otherwise, hey, we are used to it. We, heard, we like heard it over and over again. It's like a song in our ears. Ms. D's current tour through the school has served almost as a PSA that the students from 66 different countries speaking 44 different languages are no longer refugees. This is their home. They're new Americans. It's also allowed her to indulge her own interests. I love to travel. I love food. I love to learn new things. I think we just figured out where travel around the world came from. You just wanted to travel cheap. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I don't have to deal with the jet lag. It's not, I get the same food. It's exactly right. <laughs> Jimmy Gutierrez reported that story for New Hampshire Public Radio's program, Word of Mouth. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Debbie Bleacher. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.